from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Earlier this month, a one-of-a-kind artifact was presented to the St. Louis Kaplan-Feldman Holocaust Museum. It is a small object physically, a two-inch wide metal bracelet, but it has a remarkable history. Here's a 14-year-old boy um, in the, you know, surviving the most frightening and horrific of life circumstances. And um, I'm sure nobody gave him that piece of metal and said, here, want to make a piece of jewelry. So, Dan, this was found on an archaeological dig. I understand this dig was happening in, in a forest. Do you have any theory of how this bracelet from Ben could have ended up there? Did he discard it knowing that he'd be searched and he just decided to get rid of it on his own? Had it been confiscated and seen as something of no worth and, and thrown away? Everything is sort of what's likely to be, what could have been. You know, being embraced by people and being heard um, was, was very meaningful to him and, and knowing what his family, you know, the loss of his family and how they suffered and, you know, what happened to humanity was, you know, he really took on the importance of, of, of sharing that story. Joining me now to tell the story of the bracelet, its creator, and the reason it ended up here in St. Louis is Sharon Barry. Sharon, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in my father's story. So Sharon, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about your father here in the coming minutes. I understand that he went by Ben Fainer during his decades in St. Louis, but back in Bedzin, Poland, uh, he had a different name. Uh, tell me about that and what you know about your family's roots there. Well, over the past couple of years, I've, I've learned um, quite a bit um, of information that I previously was unknown. So my father was born um, Bendit, it's B-E-N-D-Y-T, Bendit Ehrman, and that was his mother's uh, family name because his parents were married in a synagogue in 1930, and that was very common then. Um, they didn't have a civil union so he carried his mother's uh, family name hmm. and the the Benek, which is the b-e-n-i-e-k is uh like a polish spelling of of Bendit. okay so he was Benek ehrman uh, the family was there in poland and they were jewish obviously in the 1930s that became a huge problem um, when did they find themselves facing possible deportation to a camp well, the exact date is, is unknown, but um, what is known is that, it, you know, in September of 1939, the, you know, the Germans invaded, uh, occupied, um, and ghettoized uh, most of, of Poland, and then, you know, began the next few years deporting uh, Jews to uh, work camps, concentration camps, and extermination camps. So, um from the research that I've done, um, I, I'm really still unsure when that exact date was. Probably about 1941, maybe 1940. Mm. Um, there was a census taken and uh, it was finished in 1940. And my father and his family was listed in that. But the exact date that he was taken to the Klobuk work camp, 
Um, I have not I have not pinned that down yet. And before um, he was sent to this work camp, uh, do you know if if the family made attempts to try to get out of of Nazi occupied Poland? None that my father shared with me, but um, recently um, I received, um, well, I saw in one of the groups on Facebook, um, something called the, the Lodish List, it's spelled L-A-D-O-S, and whenever I, you know, I'm kind of a research geek, and you know, when I see pieces of information, you know, I'm always looking for family information and for a picture of my grandmother, that I, you know, whom I've never seen a picture of and other information. And so I looked at this list and I was, my heart stopped mm. uh, to see my grandmother's name on this list. So it appears that she had reached out to uh, whomever the contact was invention in this underground network. Um, there was this whole organization, humanitarian effort to get forged passports into people's hands and then, you know, mm. so they, to prevent deportation. And so she was, she was trying to get out and, and your understanding is that that was not something she was able to do for herself or, or for that immediate family. Is that right? No, no, because the, the date of the, of the request that she made and when the people came back to contact her, um, she was not found to be found were what the notes were, um, and she had already been deported. And so you said your father ended up at this work camp. Do, do we know what happened to his mother and, and to siblings that he had at that point? Well, the last time my dad saw his mother and siblings is when, you know, they were separated, whatever date that was, and he was loaded on a work truck with his father and stood and, you know, watched his, his mother and sisters, and that was the last time he saw them. Um, possibly, um, you know, it could have been 1942 when his mother was deported. Um, you know, some people were, the, uh, were found useful to the Germans because they could, you know, provide labor in, in whatever... Uh, factory they were still running in Poland but uh, a, a woman with three children um, probably was not one not seen as a candidate mm -hmm. um, as being useful um, and there are no records of Hannah being ever in a work camp my grandmother and, um, and her young children and as my you know my father describes she just poof they were gone <sighs> And and so, it's, I mean, that's a, just a terrible thing that happens. Your father, another terrible thing, he ends up at this work camp. I understand this was a satellite uh, to Auschwitz where he was. What do you know about what he was doing within that work camp? So Bletchemer was after Klobuck, and I'm unsure if there was something else in the middle. Um, and he was, that's where he was tattooed um, sometime, you know, at, after you know April 1944, um, it appears that he worked in a uh, locksmith shop or in a metalworking shop hmm. um, while he was there. And you know the the bracelet itself is you know so interesting that he you know made this. You know here's a 14 year old boy um, in the you know s surviving the most 
frightening and horrific of life circumstances and um I'm sure nobody gave him that piece of metal and said, here, want to make a piece of jewelry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you probably stole the metal and, uh, you know, different at different points in time, you know, because you look at it and you can see there's different tools that were used and there's, you know, several, you know, the decoration and just, just several pieces of work. So it's not likely that it was all done in one sitting. Mm -hmm. So he might have been just sneaking work on this at the, at the point that he was doing some metalworking within this locksmith shop for his captors. I think so. So he he had a pretty complicated journey, as, as many of these things ended up uh, being at that time. He was ultimately imprisoned in six different camps. How did he end up in Buchenwald? In January of 1945, before uh, you know Auschwitz was liberated, there was a death march out of Auschwitz and the satellite camps, which was Blutchhammer, where my father was, and that was a 12-day walk in very cold weather without you know uh, shoes and boots um, to a camp called Gross Rosen. Um, it is believed that he was there for about five days and then uh, transported on a, um, uh, a train, but they were open coal cars uh, from um, Gross Rosen to Buchenwald. Uh, and then he was in Buchenwald then until, uh, that was uh, February, he arrived in uh, Buchenwald of 1945. Okay, so that's February of 1945. When did the Allies show up at, at that camp and, and he was able to be liberated? Well, the Allies showed up, uh, I believe, around the 11th of April, and the camp had already, as they described, self-liberated because the Germans had left. Hmm. And my father, despite his young age, still at 14, was in the group of prisoners that was, again, marched out of Buchenwald because they were still intending to, you know, uh, carry on and take prisoners that were still alive and that could work. Mm -hmm. um, so my father was in that group that was marched out. Uh, so the camp was, was, was liberated around the 11th, and my father was on a, a road heading towards Kamm, Germany, uh, when the Americans, um, when the Americans arrived on the road. And did he understand at that point um, what was happening, that, that this was the end of, of being under the Nazis' thumb? From what he wrote in his in his book, um, you know, he describes it as, you know, he didn't know that, you know, he thought it was the end that he was going to be shot. Mm. You know, he thought it was the end. And then some people came up to him and was they were speaking to him in English. And my father uh, did not speak English. He spoke a little, a little German, Polish and Yiddish. And a man came up to him who spoke uh uh, Yiddish and told him that he was free. Hmm. This was an American soldier who, who maybe knew Yiddish from home? An American soldier from Brooklyn. His name was Israel Friedman. Hmm. And so at that point, um, he's free. Um, however, I know this was this was such a tough experience for so many people. It wasn't like, oh, hey, and here's your ticket to the U.S. He ended up going to Ireland, then a number of countries before he finally ended up in St. Louis in 1957. What brought him here? 
well, before he even, to go back a step, before he even left Germany, you know, he was in a DP camp and um, displaced you know, many persons. people. Right, right. And many people actually died that were, that had been liberated because they're starving and, you know, the Americans gave them food and they died from the food. So it was really, it was very, very, very bad. Mm -hmm. um, so my father was in more than one displaced, displaced person camp because he was looking for his mother and looking for his family. And so he's traveling around Germany, you know, going from place to place looking for his family. Um, and then he, I think with the help of the Red Cross or other agencies, then they reached out to his aunt and uncle who had um, left Benjamin before the war and were in Ireland. Um, so you know, he was in Ireland, met my mother, went to see a cousin, then he moved to Canada, to Montreal, where there was a distant family member, um, and then came to the States, to St. Louis, because his father was here. Hmm. So Sharon, you're giving us so much history here, and it, it's just, it's, it's great to, to hear how this journey ended up unfolding. I understand this is not something you grew up knowing. When did your father first begin to really open up to you about all of this? Well, it wasn't until um, my father speak, began speaking, um, and that was 1994, I'm thinking, is when... So almost 50 Mars years after these events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it hard for him to tell this story? Well, initially, he had no interest. <laughs> he was very stubborn. He had no interest in sharing his story. He kept it, you know, repressed it and kept it bottled up for years, and and that's what he wanted to continue to do. We're talking that was not the case. <laughs> we're talking today to Sharon Barry. Her father, Ben Fainer, was Jewish and lived in Poland before being imprisoned in six different concentration camps as a teenager. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue this story with Sharon when we come back. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today we're discussing an artifact's journey from World War II-era Germany to St. Louis. And that story is also the story of Ben Fainer, who was imprisoned in six different concentration camps as a teenager after uh, growing up in Poland. And we're talking today to Ben's daughter, Sharon Barry. Um, Sharon, as, as you said, your father didn't speak much about this for decades. And then ultimately, he ended up doing a lot of speaking about it. He even wrote a book about it. What changed, do you think, that, that he went from being so reticent about this to really feeling that this story was something that had to be shared? Well, you know, the first, when he first started speaking, um, I, I think just the, the, the slowly opening up and the, and the healing process that, you know, just being able to share the, what, what had been bottled up inside him for so long, um, I, you know, I guess he, you know, he found it, he found it healing and he was embraced by people and, you know, he missed so much in his life. You know, my dad said to my son, uh, once he said, I was never a teenager, mm -hmm. I was a prisoner. So, 
you know, he, he missed so much nurturing um, that that most people have. And, you know, there was a big hole in him um, in addition to, you know, the other psychological and um, physical damage. So mm -hmm. being, you know, being embraced by people and being heard um, was was very meaningful to him and, and knowing what his family you know, the loss of his family and how they suffered and, you know, what happened to humanity was, you know, he really took on the importance of, of, of sharing that story. Hmm. Well, we have another guest today. This is someone who got to know Ben Fainer after he began to actively speak about these experiences, and that is Dan Rich. He's the curator and director of education at the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum. Dan, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Dan, is it unusual that Ben would wait so long to be ready to tell his story? Um, yes and no. He actually titled his book Silent for 60 Years, mm. which literally was true. That was not always unusual. Uh, a lot of survivors, when they came here, were told, move on, look forward, don't dwell on the past. They didn't want to have a dark cloud over their children. So many of them really did not speak uh, until they felt they needed to share their story, that it was important that it not be forgotten. Hmm. Uh, on the other hand, there were some who immediately uh, felt it was important to, to share their testimony. So, Dan, uh, uh, Ben ended up dying in 2016. In those final years where he was sharing this story so widely, uh, do you think he took joy from that? Or maybe not joy is the right word, but, but do you think that this was, a, this was a good experience for him to be out there doing that? You know, it, it is complicated. Definitely, once he started, you couldn't stop him. Mm -hmm. uh, he saw how important it was. He saw how... Telling his story inspired visitors, especially younger people, uh, to learn the lessons of the Holocaust. And he was such an example of resilience because after six camps and losing his family and suffering as he did, he also enjoyed life. And he communicated that, that uh, there was, he still was sort of someone who who, you know, just enjoyed living, and it was so inspiring for so many people. Years after he'd passed away, visitors were still saying, is Ben here? You know, we remember Ben. Mm. He, he really had inspired many, many people, and he knew that. And there was one incident when a doctor told him, you must have surgery, and he said, I won't because I've got a, an appointment to speak to... A, a military group coming to the museum, and he said he would not have the surgery till after. He had his priorities. <laughs> he, he did. Now, we're talking about Ben today, not just because of this remarkable life story, but also because of this bracelet. Now, earlier this month, this one-of-a-kind artifact was presented to the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum. This is a two-inch wide metal bracelet. Sharon, this was two years after your father's death that you heard about this bracelet for the very first time. How did it come to your attention? A bolt from the blue. <laughs> I, I mean, I got this email and I looked at it and I, I was like, 
my initial response was, what kind of sick joke is this? Um, you thought this was maybe a scam, somebody trying to, to give you trouble. I was just stunned. I, I just, it was, you know, I had, of course, no, no background information of anything like this happening. And then, you know, I looked at the domain where it came from. I, you know, Googled the person and, you know, it was just, yeah, it was real. And, you know, we began communicating with them. And what was this person saying in this email? They were just right to the point <laughs> and said, uh, your father was um, imprisoned in, in here uh, and uh, there was an archaeological dig uh, that was happening in the early 90s and this bracelet was was found and it's, they, there was some words lost in translation from German to English because they referred to it as a badge, B-A-D-G-E, hmm. not a bracelet. Um, and there was a picture attached to it and um and it was just kind of like wow you know and they knew it was my father because they uh you know because he had done a video with the museum and it was out on the internet and uh the foundation that we set up to remember my father there was also information that had the same name and his prisoner number there and and they and that's how they contacted me and this was his name from from when he was in poland that was on this this bracelet a name he hadn't used in years is that right correct because he made it when he was 14 <laughs> that was his name and we do want to mention for people curious about this bracelet, uh, we're putting a picture up on Twitter. That's STL on air. We'll also get that on our website, stlpublicradio.org. Um, Sharon, this is a pretty small bracelet, metal, um, and had his name on it. Anything else that, that made it notable to you? Well, no, his prisoner number, did you say, this, is engraved in it the year that it was made. And then there's a, there's a 28 um, in the other corner, and I don't know if that was a camp or that he was in at Bletchhammer or if it was a bunker number. Hmm. I don't know the significance of it. So, Dan, this was found on an archaeological dig. I understand this dig was happening in, in a forest. Do you have any theory of how this bracelet from Ben could have ended up there? Uh, theories, yes. <laughs> but um, did he discard it knowing that he'd be searched and he just decided to get rid of it on his own. Had it been confiscated and seen as something of no worth and and thrown away? So it's all in the realm of theory. Uh, he never spoke about this bracelet. Hmm. So everything is sort of what's likely to be what could have been. Hmm. So, Sharon, I think it's worth mentioning, too, you got this email in 2018, but this bracelet was actually discovered in the 1990s. It sat in a box for the final two decades or so of your father's life and before they, they contacted you with this. Do you wish you could have gotten a chance to ask him about this? Oh, oh yes. Oh, yeah. So many. There's so many questions that, you know, you know. And what led them to finally reach out after all that time and to send you this email that was a bolt out of the blue, yet somehow took decades to send? Well, the uh, person that found uh, the bracelet, um, he took a picture of it, and um, he was cleaning his office. His name is Dr. Sven Bear, and he was cleaning his office, and he found the picture of the bracelet, and he contacted the Buchenwald Memorial and asked them, whatever happened to that and then 
Google searches ensued, and that's how they, you know, found um, my dad, and uh, you know, because he's out there on the internet, <laughs> and found me, and you know, the uh, yeah, just the, the the timing of it is. Oh, you know, maybe somebody could have contacted us in the 90s, but, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the museum there in Germany, you know, the museum was new and there, there weren't the resources then that there are now. And mm -hmm. it's just, it, it just, it wasn't meant to be. It's interesting because that feels like a near miss that they didn't get it to you just two years earlier. But the other near miss might have been if he hadn't been so public speaking out about his life, it might have been impossible for people to connect that name to you and to find you today. Do you ever think about that, that you might never know about this if not for the the fact that he'd become such a, a public speaker and, and wrote this book. Yeah, that's that's possible. That is possible. Dan, it's it's just it's just a remarkable story, and I know you probably hear so many remarkable stories in your line of work. But what strikes you about hearing about Sharon finally getting this bracelet after so many decades? Well, uh, it, remarkable indeed. Uh, Sharon called me when she first was contacted. And I was like, what? You mean they're willing to give? I, I had a lot of questions. But mm -hmm. I said, the bottom line is, when you get the breast bracelet, if, when you travel to Germany, when you get it, when it's all worked out, whenever you're ready to give it, we're eager and honored to accept it. I knew even two years ago that uh, this artifact would have a very, very important place in our Holocaust Museum, because Ben had such an important place mm -hmm. at our museum. So timing, you know, yes, it would have been wonderful earlier, and again, to be able to ask Ben about it. Uh, but one other good timing is we're in the middle of a major expansion, and we'll have an entirely do, new uh, permanent, permanent exhibition and this artifact will have a very important place in our permanent ex exhibition when we reopen in summer of 2022. So you'll be able to tell some of this story, not just display the bracelet, Dan? We will tell as much of the story as we can. Um, you know, again, I said, when you're ready, we're ready. This culminated, you know, in the last week or two. And uh, I'm still eager to sit down with Sharon. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this a great deal over the years, but really document and record all of the details of acquiring the bracelet. Mm -hmm. And I also want to make sure we speak to the people at Buchenwald so that we can get as complete a picture as we can about this bracelet. There'll always be some unknown questions, uh, mm -hmm. but we will try to get as much information as we can. And as I say, it will be highlighted on view in our new museum, which opens next summer. So, Sharon, um, it's great to hear about uh, the museum's plans to highlight this bracelet. But I imagine um, different people could have come to different decisions about what to do with this artifact. I imagine you have so little from, from your father's years in Poland. What made you decide that a museum was the right place for this, not to just keep this to yourself? Well, I didn't really feel that it belonged to me. Um, I mean, it was, you know, the, the 
St. Louis community, the Holocaust Museum was such a part of my father's life. I mean, it gave a whole new meaning to his life, the last 20 years of his life. Um, and just to go back to one thing that uh, you were saying about why didn't my dad speak and other survivors, there wasn't really an opportunity for them to speak. There was no uh, venue. <laughs> and so it, no one was really interested in <laughs> hearing you know, what people had to say. So when the museum opened in um, 95 and when Marcy Rosenberg um, you know, met my dad and, you know, took his video testimony for the USC Shoah Foundation. And, you know, that community lifted up the survivors here in St. Louis and just, I mean, and so to have, you know, St. Louis is one of the a handful or two handfuls of cities in the country that have Holocaust museums and to have such a, a this, this community here in St. Louis is, you know, it, it it was everything for my father and it, you know the bracelet is was my father's it's my father's story um, and it and it belongs in the museum not not in a box and not in in my drawer well Sharon Barry I want to thank you so much for joining us today and just sharing this story and, and sharing so much about your father's life I'm, I'm just so touched by by everything you've shared today and I want to thank you for for being here Thank you for having us. And Dan Rich, Curator and Director of Education at the St. Louis Kaplan-Feldman Holocaust Museum. Thank you. Thank you. When people ask about Ben when they come in now, we can show this bracelet, which tells his story. And what a, what a remarkable ending to, to what a remarkable tale. Thank you for that, Dan. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.